Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you that we are never, ever, at any moment, left without a word from you. And this morning we got we get to hear from your word. And I ask you to help me to be faithful to what you have written. Help us to receive this word with gladness in our heart. I thank you for the timely nature of last week's sermon and the passage that you would have us be on in this week's and next week's as they just line up so well for what's going on in the life of our church. I ask you to help us. Holy Spirit, I trust and know that you will. In Jesus' name, amen. I have this morning two intros, and the first one, if you want to turn there with me, comes from two verses in John chapter 5. And before we get into Genesis chapter 9, verse 18 to 28, I want to set our mind in tune with the big picture of the Scriptures. And Jesus is going to tell us in John chapter 5 what the Bible is about. Simply put, what the Bible is about. The Sunday school answer, if somebody was to ask, hey, what is the Bible about? Many children and adults would say, Jesus. And that is, in its most basic sense, true, but it also is the most profound reality of the Scriptures, that the, tri- the Scriptures really are about the person and work of Jesus, God's redemptive work in humanity, redemptive and restorative work in the world. John chapter 5, Jesus is talking to a group of religious leaders, and two verses in particular I want us to look at, and, and basically what I want us this morning to do is take these verses and put one of these verses on this eye, the other verse on this eye, and, and it be our verses or our lenses this morning by which we see Genesis chapter 9. And every once in a while we need to be refreshed to make sure we know that the Old Testament that we're preaching through, this book of Genesis that we're preaching through, is a testimony of the work of Jesus. It is not just isolated stories, but it is all redemptive stories, it is covenantal stories, it's all stories of human brokenness, and it's, it's stories of God's bigness and His saving work. And all of these are like big signposts, big pointers, pointing forward to a future redemptive work. And all the redemptive works that we see are retroactive works, effective because of this future work of what Christ would do. And so these two verses are going to be our lenses this morning by by which we look back and we see some of these metaphors, some of these analogies, some of these uh, pointers that we're going to see in Genesis chapter 9. So the first one is verse 39. So so John uh, chapter 5 verse 39 says this, Jesus, as he's talking to a group of religious leaders, says, you search the scriptures... Because you think that in them you have eternal life. Pause. That sounds so right. It sounds as if Jesus is commending this group of religious leaders. Because after all, who looks at the scriptures and doesn't want to find life? Right? Of course we, I mean, my goodness, yes, we want to find life in the scriptures. But Jesus is going to then give a corrective tone, a corrective word, and say that there's a way to read the scriptures that's entirely wrong. And this is the way the religious leaders were doing this. The way the people were were reading the scriptures in the day of Christ were completely wrong because they were actually missing Jesus. And this is exactly what he says. And it is they that bear witness about me, yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. So this is the first lens. If you come to the scriptures and you just try to get some historical you know, tidbits, if you just try to get some pointers for the day, if you just try to get some things to uplift you, uh, if you just try to get 
uh, life verses, whatever it may be, and you miss Christ, you're missing the point of the Scriptures. So we need communion with Christ when we're in the Scriptures. We don't just need cold readings, or we don't just... For He wrote of me. But if you do not believe His writings, how will you believe my words? So we'll, we'll just do a quick question. Who wrote... What, what books did Moses write in the Old Testament? Anybody? Verse 5. So Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. What book are we preaching through right now? Genesis. So here's what Jesus is telling us. Moses is a herald. Moses is a teacher. He's telling us in these books that he wrote, he's telling us about Jesus. And for us to read Genesis and miss Christ, we're missing the whole point. So there's lens number two. Lens one, the scriptures are about Christ. Okay, we, we want to commune with Christ, rather. We, want to, we don't want to just read it in a cold nature or just for, for information. We want to read it to spend time with Jesus, to know the Christ of the scriptures. And two, the scriptures that we're going to be studying this morning are not just historical, they're not just redemptive, they're in the end about Christ. So that's lens number two. Now, without in mind, and without any further ado, turn back to Genesis chapter 9. And we're going to be in verses 18 to 28. Now, when you get there, I want to do a real quick intro number 2. So that was intro number 1. Intro number 2. Go ahead and turn to Genesis chapter, chapter 9, verse 18 to 28. First, Adam and Noah share some similarities. Last week we looked at some of this, and I want to do a quick overview so we're reminded again what God told Noah. First, in verses 1 through 4, God told Noah something very similar to what God told Adam. Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, I give you everything. In verse 7 and 8, God says to Noah again, And you, be fruitful and multiply, increase greatly on the earth, and multiply in it. God gives Noah everything like God gave Adam everything. And the question then for us this morning is, what is Noah going to do with this? We know what Adam did with his responsibilities that God gave to him. What is Noah going to do? What will Noah do with this commission that God gave him? Will there be obedience? Will there be gratitude? Will Noah fail? Or will he prevail if he fails? Then what is that supposed to tell us? What's the message that we're supposed to understand about that? If he were to prevail, what would be the message that we were to take from that? And so we need to take note of what the scriptures are going to tell us about Noah. And then we need to find out what does that mean for us. What are we going to find out about Noah? And what are we going to learn as it relates to ourselves? First, I want us to look at verse 18 to 20. Look with me. The sons of Noah who went forth from the ark were Shem, Ham, and Japheth. What terrible names, right? I mean, my goodness. There's a new name. Ham. <laughs> you remember, what was, was it Ham in, uh, was it in uh, Gold, or in, uh, I'm thinking Goldberg from Mighty Ducks. Now I'm thinking, uh, wasn't Ham the name of the catcher in the Sandlot? Wasn't it Ham? No? What was the catcher in the Sandlot's name? I think it was Ham. You know? He said, you play ball like a girl and everybody just freaked out. Remember that? Okay, everybody needs to go watch Sandlot. If you remember anything from today, go watch Sandlot. Um, so Ham, terrible name, and Japheth. Ham was the father of Canaan. Verse 19, these three were the sons of Noah, and from these all the people of the earth 
were dispersed. And by the way, we find out that this is not in chronological order with chapter 11. Some of the things in Genesis are not in chronological order, but they have their place and their purpose. Verse 20, Noah began to be a man of the soil, and he planted a vineyard. He drank of the wine and became drunk and lay uncovered in his tent. Well, first, what we see is that Noah took the gift that God gave him and he did something right with it. He began to use it correctly. He started well. He became a a vineyard owner and he began to make wine. This was a good thing. It wasn't a wrong thing. He began to use the soil and, and cultivate the soil and he began to do something profitable, not just for himself. It would actually benefit other people as well. And so he began to grow things from the land. And this is very much like uh, uh, Adam and Eve, where Adam was a caretaker of and a cultivator of the garden. Okay, there's some similarities here. They began to both work with their hands and see things grow up out of the earth, and it was going to be a benefit for Noah and his family and for whoever else. So he started off well. But verse 21 tells the story very clearly that Noah began to misuse what he was formerly using properly. So he drank of the wine and became drunk and uncovered in his tent. Now, not to be overly crude, but I've heard of people drinking too much um, alcohol and then becoming unclothed and finding themselves in situations that are not godly uh, with other people. Uh, You have got to be really, really a person of uh, alcoholic beverages to be drunk and naked alone. And this is where Noah found himself, okay? Um, It was a bad day um, for him. And he laid in his tent alone and uncovered. Now, nakedness was intended in the garden to be beautiful and shame-free. But from Genesis 3 on, we see that nakedness became a source of shame. And so when Adam and Eve realized that they had sinned against God and that they were naked, uh, they wanted to clothe themselves, and which humans always try to do, fix our problems ourselves. And then God would come, actually, and slay an animal and clothe them for themselves. Even God would come and clothe them and do rightly what they were trying to do as they tried to fix the problem. Now... We see that nakedness in this sense is going to be a source of shame because in the very next chapters we're going to see what happens. So the question is, why for us, why does the Bible make such a big point about the sins and failures of God's people? Adam and now Noah, right after God's salvation... Right after God rescued them from the flood, right after God provided and put that put that ark on the top of the mountains of Ararat, right after God sent the birds back, right after the family was saved and they walk out and now they're given the entire world, why does the scripture make a point to show us that Noah screws up? Right after, you you would think there would be unbelievable gratitude. You would think there would be unbelievable gratefulness. You would think that they would go out and delight, skipping and jumping up and down and singing praises to God. They just got out of this dark, dreary, as we talked about last week, uh, the the dark dreariness of an ark for month after month after month, uh, over a year, you know, and you would think, okay, light, world, I'm I'm grateful, I want to do what God's called me to do. And we see that Adam 
Alright, excuse me, that Noah does something shameful. And then when we begin to do kind of a biblical survey, if we kind of use that as a diving board and jump off into some of the rest of the scriptures, some interesting characters begin to come out. And Brennan Manning uh, made this statement famous. He called uh, his book about grace the ragamuffin gospel. He talks about just the ragamuffin nature of humanity. And the ragamuffin nature, even of, of, of spirit-filled Christians, some uh, some, spirit, some believers in Christ as we're walking, we, we show steady growth and we don't have major major times of backsliddenness or even major times where we're, you know, passionless. Certainly there's times of difficulty, but then for others, we see it in our life and it may be you where you've stumbled greatly and some of the biggest sins in your life have come after you were converted. And it's not that you feel easy about it, you feel convicted and devastated over it, but for some reason you keep doing the same stinking things you don't want to do, and there just is this major battle, there's this major war that goes on within you. And, and we see about Noah, I think, and then about the rest of these characters in the scriptures, they're very there's just a humanness about them. They're just a ragtag, rough, ragamuffin bunch. And so we have Noah, and then moving on from Noah, uh, we find out about Abram. And we will study Abr Abram, later Abraham, here in just a few weeks. And Abraham, uh, this guy, he actually pawns off his wife twice. Sarah, you remember the story? Two times, he thinks, my older wife, who must have been the most attractive, uh, you know, 75 and then almost 100-year-old woman in the world, because they go into this foreign land, and his, you know, he's, he's thinking, you know what, I'm going to say she's my sister, and of course that was uh, partially true, it was his half-sister, Sarah was, and he, he goes, well, you know, Sarah, just say that you're my sister, so they can go and they can have you, lay with you, and then they won't kill me. It's like, man, that's, that's a terrible husband, and he does it twice, you know? Um, and so then we move on and we find out some things about Sarah that are kind of weird as well. But Sarah laughed with God when she heard about the promise of God uh, to, that she would bear a son. And then she convinced her husband to sleep with another woman to get her pregnant. And we find that Sarah herself is a little bit sketchy in the realm of morality. Then we go on to Moses. Moses was a murderer. He murdered. And then he was the very one through whom God would give us the law. We've heard of the law of Moses in the ultimate twist of irony. It's given to the one who committed murder. And I don't know about anybody in this room, if you know a murderer, that reputation stays with you. Even if you get exonerated, somehow or another, 50 years later, you are labeled. And then everybody questions, how in the world did you get out? Nobody forgets that. Moses, the murderer, would end up being the lawgiver. And then it goes on, Gideon, a, pro, or a judge of God, was afraid. Samson loved a crazy woman. And then later, some would argue, I would argue, committed suicide. David committed adultery and murder. Jonah ran from God. Peter three times denied that he even knew Jesus in the ultimate act of betrayal. His best friend on earth turned and said, I never knew him. Israel, God's people, continued to reject God's prophets and they preferred foreign gods. And we find here that Noah is this first guy, or second guy after Adam. And we see that Noah was no different. And so... From this point on in the passage, we're going to see there's a solution then. What's the following of finding out Noah was, uh, he sinned against God, he misused God's gift that God gave to him. We're going to see two symbols, two ways, two metaphors, if you will, and, and how the sin of Noah was dealt with. And we're going to see this in the sons. We're going to see Ham's action, okay? 
Ham with the terrible name ended up, ended up also having the terrible character. And then the other two sons are going to do something for their father. And it's going to point us outside of itself. So I want you to see through a quick read-through of both ways to deal with, with Noah's problem, his sin problem. And then we want to go back and talk about the first way and then the second way. So look in verse 22 and we'll see the way Ham handled his father's sin. Verse 22. And Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father, and he told his brothers outside. That's important. That's the first way. The second way that Noah's sin and shame was covered with or dealt with was through Shem and Japheth. The, then Shem and Japheth took a garment and laid it both on their shoulders and walked backward and covered the nakedness of their father. And their faces were turned backward and they did not see their father's nakedness. So we have two ways to, to deal with Noah's sin and folly. Both represented in how the brothers respond to how Noah acted. Now remember, we want to see all these themes in light of the fact that Moses is writing about Jesus. And so the first way we see it in Ham. Ham saw his father's nakedness and what did he do? He exposed the nakedness further. He went out and he told his brothers. Now we see what his brothers did in here in just a second. But we see clearly that Ham did not do this. There are many different commentators that say some things about Ham, what Ham did and what Ham did not do. I think it's just clear for our point is that Ham wanted his brothers to know and to see his father's failings. To this day, fathers and sons, some have better relationships than others, but some sons thrive on seeing the failures of their father, even though it devastates them. Because they want to be better men than their fathers. Whatever it may be. We don't know the, the, the necessary motivation of Ham. All that we know is he later was condemned by his father for it. So we can infer that all that Ham wanted to do, instead of covering Noah's folly, is he wanted to expose it. He wanted everybody to know, look how much of a screw-up my dad is. And in the most vulnerable time that we see Noah, Noah was a hero up to this point. Everything the Lord asked Noah to do, Noah did Building a boat in the middle of a desert or in the middle of a field when nobody had ever even seen rain before is pretty crazy. And Noah did it. And here we see this instance and we see Ham wanting to tell the brothers about it. Not to have them go and do what they did. He wanted to expose them in the way uh, in which um, Noah would be humiliated. And so Ham went and didn't do what his brothers would do. For much of the so-called Christian world, I want you to think about this. This is the message of salvation. Why is bickering and backbiting, and here in just a little bit when we read our, our covenant, why are we covenanting to not do any of that stupid nonsense? It's the way of Ham. Just wanting to expose everybody's sin and folly to everybody else. Hey, did you hear what Hank did? Hank's always my example because him and Marie are always up front. Um, did you hear what so-and-so did? Did you hear who's doing what? And instead of wanting to help and walk with and to cover, we want to expose and humiliate and make them feel as if they're less than and make us feel as if we're better than. This is the way of the world. Dog-eat-dog -dog Christianity. It's not just a thing out there. It's in the Christian world as well. Those who are ravenous to make themselves look better than their other than their than their peers. This is sadly just the way of the world, and it's the way of 
many, many Christians throw under the bus. We expose sin and in mockery, rather than covering that sin with the grace of Jesus, rather than pointing them to Christ, we make them feel ostracized. Even when they're repentant. When you don't understand the gospel, your heart will always want to tell of the failings of others so you can feel better about yourself. This is the way of Ham. But there's a second way, the way of Shem and Japheth. And I want us to think about this as it relates to the gospel of Jesus. When Noah could do nothing, when he could not cover himself, when all he had to offer was being passed out and exposed, the sons do something about it. When Noah could do nothing, they carried on their shoulders the very object that would cover Noah's shameful sin. They do something. They put on their shoulders a garment, okay, and they go into this tent, and instead of telling others about the sin of their father, they want to do something about it. So they go in and they cover Noah's nakedness. The sons cover his shame because Noah couldn't do it himself. They were turned backwards. They did something about it. The commentary that my friend Kurt gave me when I started the book of Noah, or book of Genesis, uh, says, it, says it like this, and it begins to parallel Noah and Adam. And I want you to think about this because it gets to be so beautiful. The parallel between the two situations, speaking of Noah and Adam, is very striking. Both Adam and Noah were commanded to fill the earth and exercise control over it. Each of them is actually the ancestor of all the men in the present world. Each sinned by partaking of a fruit. Noah, the fruit of the vine. Adam, the fruit of the tree of knowledge. As a result, each became naked and then was provided with a covering by somebody else. It's beautiful. Finally, the prophecy resulted in, which we won't get to today, in a curse which has affected mankind ever since. Along with the curse, however, there will also be the blessing and the anticipation of the ultimate salvation. Notice, in this instant, both things, Adam and Eve, their sins were covered by another, and Noah's sin and shame and him being exposed was covered by another. And also take note, if you'll look at the passage, their faces, in verse 23, were turned backward, and they did not see their father's nakedness. So, they turned their face away from Noah, and they decided not to see the sin and the shame. And friends, when we are converted in Christ, when, you're, when we are clothed with Christ... Our sins are thrown as far as the east are, is from the west. God does not deal with us according to our iniquities. And He does not see the sin in us, but He sees Christ counted righteousness upon us. Christ's actual right, righteousness counted upon us. And I want you to see the radical, radical gospel-centeredness of the Scriptures. I want you to see this. These two ways, they're presented everywhere in forms of metaphor, in, in, in metaphoric ways, and in sacrificial ways, and redemptive ways, and over and over and over again, we're going to see these pictures. And friends, I, I'll, I'll tell you right now, I believe with everything in me, this picture of Noah failing and being covered by somebody else is for us this morning, for us to see more clearly the redemptive work of Jesus. 
When we couldn't do anything, when we lay powerless, Christ came for us to do what we could not do. And our sin and our shame have been covered. The Bible is radically gospel-centered. Now, I want to, what I want to do then, from here on, on out, I want to look at a couple implications before we go into our, our membership reading. And, um, and, and this is for everybody in this room. I want you to think about these implications. We're going to go to 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 1-5. through 5. So, go there with me, uh, if you would. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 1-5. through 5. Here's what I'm arguing for this morning. If Jesus declares to us that all the scriptures are about him and that Moses wrote of him, and if that, what I just said, was a proper interpretation, if, if we are to see Christ in everything, if all of the scriptures are about Christ, then it is true to say, I believe, that Christian ministry should be centered around Christ, that pastoral ministry should be centered around Christ, and then the life of the body should be centered around Jesus. Meaning there's nothing that we should do that we could say we could do without Christ, and there's nothing that we should do in the life of the church that we could say that we don't need Christ. That He's the point of everything. Our mission has to include Jesus Christ. We don't have a message without the message of Christ. Our message is not do better, clean yourself up, act right. Here, we'll bring social change. Our message is God makes dead people live. And if you will repent of your sins and you will trust in Christ in His life, death, and resurrection, you will move from being dead to alive. This is our message. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 1-5. through 5. And when I came to you, brothers, did I not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God? With lofty, not with the testimony of God, with lofty sweet speech or wisdom, for I decided to know nothing among you except Christ and Him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. And in my speech, my message were not with plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, so that your faith may not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Um, I want to make some commitments to you. Um, as a pastor, and you guys have been so gracious to let me serve you in that capacity, uh, I'm going to say this on behalf of Andy, and on behalf of Russ, and on behalf of um, Hank as well. We are committed to deciding knowing nothing among you except Christ and crucified. And I just want to be honest and, and just gut level here. Um, as long as we're here, I wrote this down for clarity's sake, I've been trying to do that. I want to preach and counsel you toward Christ and Him crucified. Um, you don't need me to be wise. You don't need to me to, to give you a vision for the church. Christ is really good at doing that for me. And what I want for you and what I want to know among you is Christ and Him crucified. I don't want to do any counseling. I don't want to do any preaching that isn't connected to that. And I pray this morning, my heart is, is that this passage in Genesis chapter 9 can be a microcosm scale example for the macro of all of the years, by God's grace, that we get to have together. 
that every time we come to the Scriptures, every time we look at the Word in small groups, every time we look at anything, we're doing it with the lenses of Christ on it, and we're pointing each other, and we're wanting and deciding to know nothing among you except Christ and Him crucified. Falling in love with Jesus, being transformed by the Spirit over and over and over again in your heart, that's what I want for you the rest of your life. I can't give you enough points. I can't give you enough pathways. I can't give you enough direction. I can't give you enough information to change your life and to help you when you need help throughout the week. I can't do that. I can't make your heart at peace at night. I can't give you peace right after you fail again. Right after you find yourself a ragamuffin like Noah in the gutter again or doing that thing again. But I can't help you. But Jesus can. And if I meet with you the day after you blow it, I'm going to bring you to Christ. And that's what I'm going to point you to. And that's what these men will point you to. And that's what we're committed to the rest of our life. The balm, the medicine. We want you to worship and crucify Christ. That's how we prepare for eternity. And that's what we want church membership. That's what we want for you to know as pastors of our church. That's what we want for ourselves. That's what we want for our families. We want my son to know Christ and Him crucified. And that's our commitment to you. Um, there should never be a sermon that we ever preach in which Christ is not declared. Ever. Charles Spurgeon said it. We, we quote a lot around here. Preach Christ or go home and never preach again. What do we have to offer but Christ and Him crucified? So that's what we want. That's our theme. And we will, by God's grace, be a broken record. How about the church then? That's implications for the church, I mean for the pastors. There's some implications from Genesis chapter 9 for the church as well. We, like Shem and Japheth, my hope for you and for this community, this body, and my hope for all these other churches out here, because we want to see more and more churches grow and more and more churches be transformed. There's one church in Carbondale with more than 250 people in it, and there's 42,000 people in this community. Now certainly some of them may be driving out, some of them may be believers that are driving out into the different communities and going to church. You know what that means? Like over 90% of the people living right now and breathing, unless they know Christ, if they were to die right now, would go to hell. Separated forever from what we will experience. Over 90%. There's only one church of more than 250 people in this community. We need more and more churches. But as they come in, as people come in, what kind of community are they going to find? Are they going to be one? Are they going to find a fellowship of believers that are committed to gossip and to climbing the legalistic ladder? Are they going to find a community where the most the people who give the most have the most authority? Are they going to find a community that holds grudges? Are they going to find a community here that puts a scarlet letter on anybody who sinned and they're marked forever? What kind of fellowship is this going to be? And what are you committed, as we read formally our church covenant here in just a little bit, what's my hope for you and for this body? What do I need from you? Because I'm a fellow member. There is no higher priestly role that I... This is the priesthood of believers here. And I need you in my life. I need you to hold me accountable. If I ever stop preaching Christ and Him crucified, 
you need to kick me out of here because in Galatians chapter 1, God holds the church of Galatia, the churches of Galatia responsible for the bad teaching. He doesn't hold the elders responsible for the bad teaching. He holds the church. That's your responsibility. And if the teaching here goes bad, you need to do everything you can to get us out or you need to leave and go find some other place. Because God will hold you accountable one day just like He did the churches of Galatia. We, like Shem and Japheth, will seek to cover each other. Okay? So cover, not ignore, not sweep under the rug. There's a big difference between enablement and saying, come in here, you're forgiven. We'll weep with you and we'll walk with you. Rather than just putting it under the rug, avoiding it, and be like, yeah, they sinned, but so do I. No big deal. We will seek to cover one another, another, declare regularly, your sins are forgiven. You're in Christ. You have a salvation that's so outside of you and so for you. And if you blew it, you know what? This is a community that's going to come and it's going to walk with you and say, it's okay. Look to Jesus. You know what? Tomorrow's going to be a little bit better. Look to Christ. You're forgiven. You're you're not condemned. You're not under the wrath of God today because of your crappy day yesterday. And you know what? I'm going to walk with you and if I have to repeat that to you over and over again, and if it goes in your ear one time and out the other and a thousand times more, I'm going to be in your ear again the next week. And I'm going to text you and I'll call you. That's the kind of community that I pray and hope that this continues to develop in. We seek to cover and spur one another on. Not just cover, but spur one another on. Because of what Christ did for you. Come on. You can do it. Get up. Let's go. Keep walking. God's good. I want you to walk with Christ. Let's walk towards Christ together. Leave the life of sin. Quit it. It's not worth it. And we want to spur one another on to godliness as we are covering sin and shame. That scarlet letter that exists in other places... So I heard one person say about something to the effect about this church in Nashville. Here, where you're marked out there, in here, you're marked by Christ. And we, don't just, we just decide to know nothing among you but Christ and Him crucified. If you have a past, join the club. And walk with us. Because in here, you're a son or daughter of the living God. And so we spur one another on, not by mockery or inappropriate exposure but through covering each other with a blood-soaked garment called Christ. Can there be a church community like that? Because all of us are probably, and at some point somebody here is going to be burned because we're not going to handle the situation right. We're not going to do something right. We're going to fail. But man, I think we can be a community. I think already we're like that. And I think it's building to be like that. And I pray it begins to be more and more like that. We're a community of people who want each other to understand what it means when Jesus declared, it is finished. I pray, I've heard too many stories of people who said, I've been a Christian or in church for 30 years, but then all of a sudden the light bulb went off. Well, what if that light bulb could have went off 27 years ago? What is the good news of the gospel? You didn't have to wait and you just heard it year in and year out. And you just sat there and you're just busy for God but you had no communion with Him. What if it could happen now? And so I want that for you now to understand what it means 
When Christ declared, it is finished. We are not a people of condemnation because Christ, in Christ, there is no condemnation. And the path to godliness is not finger-pointing and guilt. Rather, we're going to throw our arm around each other, our failing brother or sister, and we're just going to walk with them. Hey, come with me, because there's a cross. And we'll weep, and if I can't weep, I'm going to pray that God would give me the tears to weep with you. We're going to weep, and we're going to remind each other of what Christ has done. I believe that by God's grace, we can be a community and a body and a church like that for as long as God would have us be a church in this community. And I want that for you. I want that for me. I want that for all the family. So by God's grace, we want to emulate as Japheth and Shem were pointing us to Jesus. We want to emulate and we want to walk in with the garments of another on our shoulders. And we want to throw them over those who are exposed and sinful and can't do anything for themselves. And we don't want to be like Ham, who's just climbing the religious ladder, knows Christianese, loves the legalistic pursuit of God, feels better about themselves because they're not drunken and exposed in a tent alone. Let's, by God's grace, be like Ham and Jacob. Amen. I'm going to pray. And then what I'm going to get the privilege to do this morning is read our church covenant together. And Hank, you may be sitting on that. It's somewhere. It's a document. <laughs> it's, that's, that's it. But I think there's a, uh, just a sheet somewhere. It may be, let's see, is this it? Now, Andy, what I do with that sheet you gave me, man? Oh, here it is, over here. Sorry. And by the way, I love this because our church, like, one of the things I love about our church is that, like, if things screw up, like me forgetting something, you guys are gracious. So thank you. And stuff like this can happen. Mason, this is the book that I was supposed to give you like months ago. Okay. All right. I'm going to pray, and then I'm going to read the church covenant. And then what I'm going to do after I read this church covenant, I'm going to make a, a couple uh, uh, tidbits of commentary on this. I'm going to read the names of the people we've talked to. If you want to become a member, but we haven't talked to you, or we, we tried to make phone calls to everybody yesterday. So only names on here are those who said absolutely that they want to sign the covenant today. Doesn't mean you can't sign it next week or, or in the future or whatever. And also, in no way, if you don't want to be a member here, that is okay. You can be here, still serve, still do the things that, uh, that you've been doing here. Uh, and we are, you're, you're uh, informally a part of our body. Okay? And that is okay. And so we don't want to feel, make anybody ever feel uh, as outsiders. Ever, ever, ever. But these names are those who we had uh, just had called and they confirmed. Uh, and so if you don't get your name called, talk to us. And, uh, and if you want to become a member, we can talk, talk you through that. But uh, let me pray and then I'll read through this church covenant. Father, I thank you um, for your grace. I thank you for a great example um, as all these smaller heroes point us to the hero, you, Jesus, we thank you for your work that day and the life of, of Shem and Japheth, who didn't want to further expose or alienate their father, but who walked in and covered, covered their father. And Jesus, we thank you for covering us with your blood. Thank you that one day we're going to get clothes, white clothes that we're going to get to put on. Uh, and they have been purchased for us, excuse me, attained for us by Jesus. We're going to get to put those clothes on. We'll be spotless and without blemish. And we just thank you for that work. As I read this church covenant, God, I pray that you would just bind us together, Lord. Bind us together with cords that cannot be broken. Bind us together. Bind us together with cords that cannot be broken. 
We just thank you for this opportunity. We love you. Thank you for coming up with this great idea called the church. Thank you for loving your bride. Thank you for loving your bride. Thank you for putting us together. God, thank you for what you did this last year. Just, man, it's fun. And just continue to work in our midst. I trust that you will. Amen.